fourth watch starts now. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight, we're going to be discussing some of the latest Nephilim research, as well as some interesting topics surrounding this phenomena. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of The Fourth Watch Radio Network. I call this episode Nephilim Adventures with special guest L.A. Marzuli. Tonight's going to be exciting because it's always an adventure when we get to discuss the Nephilim hybrids from a biblical perspective and uncover the latest archaeological evidence that further supports these historical phenomena. One of my favorite researchers on the topic is joining us tonight to discuss his new book, as well as some interesting correlating topics. Let's go ahead and go to the line with L.A. Marzuli. L.A., welcome back to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? I'm good, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Definitely. Now, we've picked up quite a few listeners since the last time you and I did a show together. So, for anybody who's not familiar, L.A. Marzuli is an author, lecturer, and filmmaker. He's penned eight books, including the Nephilim Trilogy, which made the CBA bestsellers list. L.A. Marzulli also teamed up with film producer Richard Shaw to create the Watcher series. Now, I've seen the Watcher series, and folks, it is amazing. And what's really cool is that Watcher 7, UFO Physical Evidence, recently won the UFO Best Film and the People's Choice Awards at the UFO Congress in 2014. That's amazing. There's a lot of people making videos. L.A. got an award. Now, tonight, we're going to be diving into some of the treasures that you've included in your new book on the trail of the Nephilim 2. Now, I just received a copy, and I got to say, L.A., I'm blown away with what a great resource this is. It's a full-color, oversized book, and it's put together in the highest quality materials. I've seen a lot of books in my day. This book literally blew my mind. Thank you so much for sending this. I, I appreciate it, and thanks for the kudos. It's great. I want to dig into some of your research, L.A., You've really presented some really interesting things in this book. What are some of the highlights that really stuck out to you? What are some of the, the areas that you were so excited to put in this book? Well, I mean, there's so much in Amitrail 1 and Amitrail 2. It's an ongoing search for the truth. And, of course, everything points back to the biblical narrative. And what, what I mean by that is that uh, we hear in, in Genesis 6 that the fallen angels— uh, come down and they have sex with the women, and this hybrid being is known as the Nephilim. Um, there are Nephilim tribes. I believe there's more than one incursion. Uh, the Nephilim tribes in the Genesis 6, or they were here for 450 years. Lots of stuff's going on. Uh, I think there's a residue in that, and some of these ancient megalithic sites that we see around the world, for instance, Baalbek, Sacsayhuaman. Perhaps Baalbek is in Lebanon, Sacsayhuaman is in Peru. Um, and I think that uh, it was global. And this resulted in the global flood that we read about in the Bible, specifically Genesis 6 and 7. The whole reason for the flood is to wipe out this demonic hybrid known as the Nephilim. Uh, these are the soulless ones, in my opinion. And, of course, the text is very clearly the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And what's interesting is, is that I believe it's, it's manifesting in modernity. Um, it, and, of course, we can talk about that if we want to. But but um, what's, what I love about it, is that based on the idea that Joshua and Caleb go into the promised land, known as the Levant, the, the land of Canaan, and they are given a mandate to wipe out the tribes that are there. And what we see, the name of the tribes, the Zanzumim, the Emims, the Raphaim, the Nephilim, the Amalekites, the Amorites, all of these tribes, in my opinion, were Nephilim tribes. And this is why it seems like it's genocide, but it's not genocide. These are hybrid beings which have no souls. Um, and I realize that might sound really far out to some people. Nevertheless, that is the paradigm I hold on to that is straight from the biblical narrative as I interpret it. And look, I'm not the only guy that's come up with this. G.H. Pember, Clarence Larkin, uh, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas, who served as my mentor, uh, Chuck Missler, 
Tom Horn, Doug Hamp, just to name a few, all Gary Stearman, all hold to this paradigm. And we hold to it tenaciously because we believe that the most people today have been given, uh, sold a bill of goods. The history that we're being taught is the wrong history. It's a history that has been managed. Or as Chuck Missler would say, it's a carefully managed agenda. And it is. It's very carefully managed. And it's all through academia, all through the scientific community. Of course, I speak of the Darwinian paradigm. Um, the Darwinian paradigm is pounded into everyone's head. This is the way it will be. There is no God. There is no supernatural. There is just mindless evolution, natural selection over billions of years that somehow created the complexity that we see in the deoxyribonucleic uh, acid, the double helix of life, the DNA molecular structure. And what we see in the DNA molecular structure is that everything was uh, uh, created according uh, to its kind, and everything reproduces according to its kind. We don't see a, a starfish becoming a dolphin or a dolphin becoming a humpback whale or a humpback whale suddenly becoming a hummingbird. You know, a humpback whale goes, you know, flying around looks pretty good. I think I'm going to become a hummingbird. It doesn't happen that way. Everything uh, reproduces according to its kind, and that, of course, is because the DNA that is in them, that genetic coding, which tells them this is what you're going to be. Uh, when, when sperm and ova meet, uh, in, in those particular in those particular species, let's say a hummingbird, hummingbirds is what you get. You don't get penguins, and that's just how it is endlessly. The bottom line is, uh, uh, Justin, that that being on the trail, we have seen, we believe, our vestiges of the Nephilim all through the Americas, both North, Central, and South America. Um, there are artifacts in Europe. There are artifacts uh, in Russia. Uh, not so much in China, but that China is closed to us. So we don't know what's over there, but um, definitely in New Zealand and in other places. So it's a global phenomenon, and um, that's why we're on the trail. And being on the trail, for those people who might not understand, you literally go on the trail. You have been on a research project, literally going around, finding these artifacts, looking at what people are finding, finding your own, comparing things, and you're comparing them all the way up to what we call modernity. Yes, I work with several archaeologists, though, um, and archaeologists always accompany us when we're on these expeditions. So we have a um, several archaeologists that we use. Um, in the past, we've used Jez Burton, Aaron Judkins. Uh, right now, Mondo Gonzalez is our, our lead Peruvian archaeologist, and of course, Mark Hersman uh, is our archaeologist in the Americas, specifically the Ohio Valley region, where we're actually got several digs that we're working on. Now, that's getting into the Ohio, that's the, the Newark burial mounds, is that correct? The Newark burial grounds, correct. Now, that's a complete complex. That's not just a little area. That's a massive complex showing that there used to be major giant communities there. Yeah, and what's interesting is we've never seen one of these guys, but we've got article after article after article stating that the giants were in Milan between 9 and 12 feet tall. Um, this has been dismissed. Academia dismisses it. They poo-poo it. They laugh about it. And yet when I went out to Catalina Museum on the island of Catalina, 27 miles from Los Angeles, um, I uncovered literally photographic evidence um, of what we believe are nine-footers, and that shouldn't be there. Some of them with six fingers. Uh, the skulls were absolutely enormous. And we had these photographs vetted by uh, experts who looked at the photograph and using computer models were able to ascertain that the, the giant skeleton in front of Ralph Gooden, who was five foot eight inches tall, uh, who had exhumed this skeleton on the island of Catalina, um, we looked at it and all three placed it over nine feet. We rounded it down to eight and a half feet, um, just to be on the safe side. Um, it's a very, very large guy. And where are the bones? Well, the bones seem to have vanished. Isn't that interesting? And this is why we are on the trail. This is why we're not, we're not only trying to get photographic evidence, but we're trying to get real hardcore DNA evidence and, of course, trying to uncover one of these one of these skeletons in a burial mound um, in places where we are allowed to dig. And, of course, we do everything by the book with archaeologists. Now, just an interesting question. Uh, as I did a little research into the Ohio mounds, I noticed that, and again, this is I've seen this in more than one place now, and I'm curious to get your opinion. We see, according to some researchers, that some of the mounds include generally eight to nine foot remains, and then you'll have mounds down the road that are, say, 10 to 12 foot remains. How do you yes. think this lines up? Um, I mean, 
was there a hierarchy? Because we know that when you get down the line, the, the less pure of the Nephilim that, that it is, it's going to be shorter. It's not going to be quite as tall as the, the previous generation. So how does this really set up a, a scale of a social caste system? Well, we don't know. And this, this is part of the problem, Justin. We, we don't know. We don't have nearly all the data that, that we want. We've just started scratching the surface at it and looking at all this through a biblical lens. Um, many of the arch- I'm reading a book now, archaeology. It's just like an 800-page book, uh, Archaeological Evidence in the Ohio Valley. And, you know, the guy's got an ax to grind. It's a very old book, but he's got an ax to grind. And anything that doesn't fit his paradigm is immediately dismissed. Well, we're in the age where we can settle a lot by looking at the DNA. The DNA will tell us the haplogroup, in other words, the origins, where these guys came from. If if we get testing and we find out that the haplogroup uh, is closest to a Middle Eastern uh, man, then what do we do with that, right? What do we do with that? That blows the whole Beringian uh, land bridge theory, not completely out of the water, but it certainly compli- uh, complicates matters. And that, that's what's at stake here. That's what we're... We're trying to, and, you know, there's guys like Fritz Zimmerman who's written written books, guys like Brian Forrester written books. Um, you know, there's a whole plethora of people. Um, Vine DeLorean, Red Earth, White Lies, talks about that something is something is wrong, that the history that we're being taught, uh, there's an agenda behind it. And they just they're just eliminating evidence that would point to another paradigm. And of course, what our paradigm is and our worldview is, is a biblical worldview, is the worldview of a supernaturalist. So the, what we do and the reason why we do this is it points back to the veracity of the biblical narrative, and that's why we do it. Now, you mentioned Pember. Now, Pember wrote a book. Uh, what was it called? The, the Earth Ages? Earth's Earliest Ages. As a, as a Bible-believing Christian, it's kind of hard for some people to wrap their head around that book. Can you break that down from, from your perspective a little bit? Well, Pember was really ahead of his time. I mean, Pember, Pember talked about the Nephilim, the, the pre-Adamic men. He talked about in the, in the last days we would see a rise of the occult. Oh, gee, big surprise. And look, for those of you out there who don't believe that, uh, just just Google the 2015 Super Bowl halftime show with Katy Perry or Google the 2015 Grammy Awards with Madonna. Right. You tell me what we're looking at. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Fifty years ago, people would have would have stormed the Bastille protesting this kind of nonsense. Now, oh, it's just, just Katy Perry riding the beast. No problem there. Oh, is she Ishtar? Is she representing Ishtar? Of course she is. You know, it's all it's all in your face spectacle. Madonna with with these huge guys, all these dancers wearing, you know, um, uh, Baphomet horns. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 I mean, you got to watch that and see it and understand what you're looking at. It is a blatant occult ceremony being pumped into all the all the homes, and you need to pray against it. You need to stand against it and pray against it, because by watching it, you're partaking in it, just like those those who are, um, you know, who go every year to Bohemian Grove. It's not a mock sacrifice; it's a real sacrifice. And those who were there and think that they're not partaking are partaking. And this is this is where we're at, Justin. This is where we're at. And Pember predicted that in the last days there would be this incredible rise of the occult, and shortly thereafter we see it. We see it. There's two great, Russ Dizdart points this out. There are two great occult explosions in the 20th century. One is with the Nazis in the 20s and 30s, which, which we all know what happened there. The others in the 60s, they're the two greatest cult explosions that we've ever seen on this planet. It's a revival of the old, the old ways, the left-hand path, which is completely satanic in origins, in my opinion. I'm really glad you brought that up because Doc Marquis and I did a series on the occult awakening and how we're now in that time where we're seeing so many people opening their minds to the possibilities of these types of religions and these types of satanic practices. And they're, they're being sold to people through the movies, through the television shows, through the books. And, and I definitely believe that that is prophecy being fulfilled. Uh, and Doc Marquis and I, we went back to Revelation and, and we tied, uh, connected some dots as to that. How does the Earth Ages relate to the Nephilim per se? Is there a connection there? Well, those that have problems with Pember's book insist on a 6,000-year-old literal creation, and that's it. The Earth is only 6,000 years old. Um, and I don't want to get into that because all it does is cause a lot of controversy, but frankly, I don't believe it. I think the Earth is far older than that. The universe is far older than, than what we give it credit to. However, man is a very new. This creation that we're looking at, very young on the planet. 
10, 12,000 years old, something like that. That's what it is. It's very, very young, really, really young uh, in, in times of, you know, in, in terms of time. Um, and I don't believe in evolution at all in any form of it. I believe that God created everything ex nihilo, that Jesus spoke everything into existence. We read in the Gospel of John, all things were made by him. Without him, nothing that was made was made. So we know uh, from our perspective, the biblical narrative, that that's how things were made. There's a supernatural agency behind all this creating. Uh, men and women have souls. Uh, men and women can can receive a spirit of a living God in their lives, which will then connect them to the God of the universe again, uh, bring them in right standing with the God of the universe. By the blood of Jesus, that's how we get back to that stuff. So, you know, many people have trouble with a pre-Adamic race. And, you know, read Pember um, and decide for yourself. You know, pick it up, Earth's Earliest Ages by G.H. Pember, well over 100 years ago. He wrote the book, more like 150 years ago. And um, read it and check it out. I mean, there's a lot of information there. Look, we're all not going to agree on everything. I get that. I was at a conference this weekend with Russ Dizdar and Doug Hamp. And Doug and I don't agree on every little point. We don't. Russ and I agree on pretty much so far everything that, that we've both, we just have, we just kind of walk in lockstep with each other. And that's not planned. We just sort of agree on everything. But Doug and I don't, but we don't let that get in the way. The, the points are minor. Um, in my opinion, they're not worth arguing. Doug is an ally um, in some respects. Uh, Doug uh, believes, as I do, that in multiple incursions of the Nephilim, he believes that they're back. He believes that the, the mark of the beast is going to change human DNA, which, of course, I believe in. We both arrive at that independently of one another. His book, um, um, Corrupting the Image, uh, my book, The Cosmic Chess Match, talk about that in great detail. I got there through my research with the alien implants and, and actually extracting these things, he got there through another source, but we both arrive at the same place, independent, no collusion, independent of each other, no collusion between us in our research. And we all, we both agreed that this um, mark, what we read about in the book of Revelation, is, is in fact going to change the host's DNA. I mean, how absolutely incredible is that? That really does make the most sense. I've, I've done a lot of research into that, and that's actually what I really got. That's where I got started doing research in the beginning uh, over 10 years ago when I was in film school. My brother and I really got big into the, the transhumanism research and the microchipping. Um, and, and I really do think that there's going to be something to the microchip that I use this term lightly because I know people are going to probably say, oh, that's crazy. But I believe that the mark of the beast, when somebody takes it in, they're becoming a modern day Nephilim. That's kind of, maybe that's a stretch of, of the use of the words, but I kind of believe that's going to be the direction that it's going. They're going to be a modern day hybrid. Well, look, that is, that is what I, I put forth, um, in, in the cosmic chess match. I mean, that is, that is exactly my, my take on it. And that's quite frankly what, what I believe. I mean, I, I truly believe that you take the mark, you become a modern day Nephilim. And that's why the, um, the, the penalty is so severe. I mean, that's the reason for it. Once you become, you can't undo it. Correct. You know, I, I've heard people say, well, you can repent from taking the mark of the beast. And no, the Bible does not give any reference at anywhere near that perspective. You know, when you become, you can't unbecome. I completely concur in that. Now, just just a quick question and we'll move on. And, and again, I, this is kind of off the cuff here. I wasn't expecting this to come up. Um, but I do want to say this about Pember's book. Um, Tom Horn mentioned it on a radio show. And I've got to spend some time with Tom and work on a project with him. And Tom is a conservative Christian. And I know you're a conservative Christian. And for for conservative Christian researchers like yourself to recommend a book, I have to say people need to check it out. You know, we don't need to divide over something like this because there's going to be a lot of great information in that book from what I've heard. And from what I've heard, you can get it for free online. Because of the time it was written, you can find the original print in a PDF format and read it for free. A lot of these guys, you know, insist that this is how it has to be. Well, the bottom line is, you know, we don't know. Uh, if we're intellectually honest, we don't know. And it, it doesn't mess with my salvation. It doesn't detract on the work of Yeshua. It doesn't have anything to do with the promise of Messiah. And that's what the whole book is about. The, for, from Genesis 3, someone is coming who will crush your head, you'll bruise his heel. That's the first prophecy. And it says very, very clearly that your seed, the seed of the serpent, will be an enmity at war with the seed of the woman. And that's what it says. That sets up the rest of the, of the biblical narrative. And, and we see that in the culmination of the Messiah 2,000 years ago, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And we see it 
in modernity where I believe the seed of the serpent literally will be the Antichrist. It's not someone who becomes the Antichrist. It's someone who is, as Russ would call it, Russ Dizdar, homo satanist. It is direct sperm to ovum from the fallen angel himself into some woman someplace on the planet. Has that already happened? Very Probably. And this, of course, copies what he is. He's a copycatter. That's what he does. And this mimics what happened in, in the real incarnation of the Messiah. So that's what we're up against here, Justin. Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't really talk about a pre-Adamic earth. I don't really, I don't promulgate it. I know about it because I've read Pember. It's on the back burner. It's not something I go, and there was a pre-Adamic earth. I kind of lean towards that in some respects. Kind of makes sense. But I don't, because I believe that the earth was recreated. I believe something cataclysmic happened on in the universe. And I believe that cataclysmic event was the first war in heaven, the rebellion, where the fallen angels rebelled and they were cast out. That's what I believe. There's even a clue in Genesis when you go back to the Hebrew that the earth became. Correct. And well, I think, that, but see, that's the thing. It's one word and people will argue that incessantly. If it is the earth became a waste, then that means the earth was created before the Genesis 6 account or the Genesis account. So that means it's a pre-Adamic earth. I just think it's really interesting. And it's one of those things that when you do read that in the, when you go to the Hebrew and you read that, it makes you scratch your chin and just think about it. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, it's interesting for people to ponder. So anyway, that's not the, the, the purpose of the interview today, but I appreciate you, you breaking that out. That's really interesting information. And, and I don't think people should argue about it either. I think that it's, it's good to discuss these things because we we can grow from discussing things. We can we can learn sure, you know learn sure. things that we may have missed or vice versa. Now I've got I've got your book right here in my hand, and I'm just I'm still I, I I'm not trying to blow this thing up, but I'm I'm really impressed with it. Now let's talk just a little bit. Let's talk about the Paracas History Museum. Ooh, okay. Now the first time you went down, you were not allowed that you were told in the main museum, not the private museum. But the the first museum you went to in Peru, they pretty much said it's off limits. The exhibit shut down, correct? Correct. And so you guys had to go find a private museum. Um, it was a private museum, and we were able to examine the artifacts, which, of course, is what we did. We took tons of pictures, examined the artifacts. We were in the process of securing the proper permits in order to get um, artifacts out of the country, specifically DNA testing. That's what, that's what we want to do. We want to go down and get DNA uh, you know, samples from the Paracas skulls, the Paracas History Museum, and um, we'll go from there. So what's the goal? What are, what are we looking for exactly in the DNA testing? I know that you well, covered the preliminary testing in the book. Yeah, the preliminary testing was done by the late Lloyd Pye. It's probably four years old, three, four, five years old, something like that. I have no idea when the sample was taken out. Very small sample from, from the Paracas Museum, allegedly. That's the story. Um, the geneticist whom I have spoken to numerous times told us that wherever the sample came from. So, you know, there's no providence here. We don't know. But the mitochondrial DNA was not Neanderthal, Homo sapien, or Denisovan. Uh, there's a, there's a British film crew that according to what I understand, a Peruvian anthropologist, uh, took a sample from a artifact known as the Waki skull. And, uh, they tested that in Britain and they found a mitochondrial, which comes from the woman, to be human, but the nuclear, which comes from the father's side, to be something completely unhuman. In other words, nothing in the database. They couldn't trace it. It was it was no um, it was no primate that they were familiar with, and that's bizarre. And that's exactly what we expect to see. We expect to see um, genetic anomalies. If the Nephilim, or if these are the progeny of fallen angel, the women of Earth, then that's exactly what we should be seeing. Mitochondrial, okay, from the woman. Nuclear, uh -uh, outside, don't know what it is. Unknown. And isn't it interesting that uh, the British film crew, um, and we're trying to get that report if we can, but so far it's a closed door. Now let's let's talk briefly about the elongated skull, and I think this is a, this is a really big deal. People oftentimes in modernity try to say, oh well, it was some kind of a, a mutation, or um, it, they use skull binding tactics. But you found something really interesting when you were down in Peru with a fetus. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is actually, Brian Forrester uh, made me alert with that, or alerted me to that. In 1842, these two archaeologists, and at the time, uh, archaeology is, is, is in its infancy. So when I say the, the term archaeologist, they certainly shouldn't be deemed 
as archaeologists that we find in the present day. However, these guys are down there, and even then there's this debate in academia uh, raging between one side which says, oh, all these skulls are cradle headboarded, and the other side's going not so fast. Many of them are cradle headboarded, but there's a portion of them which are not cradle headboarded. And, of course, that's the side that, that we're on. So we, uh, we looked at this in uh, 1842, and these guys found a mummy. And they opened up the mummy in a mummy bundle, and they discovered it was a pregnant woman. And they estimated the woman, based on the size, was about seven months pregnant. So they opened her up to see what the fetus looked like. And lo and behold, the fetus had an elongated skull. There's a lithograph, which I reproduce in my book, Amitrail of a Nephilim, Volume 2, which clearly shows the elongated skull from 1842 from the pregnant woman. So what are we to do with that? Uh, the mummy that we unwrapped, um, we, we had an elongated skull of, a, of an 18-month-old, which we unwrapped at the History uh, Museum in Paracas, Senior Juan's Museum. We have permission for him to do so. It's all on film. Aaron Judkins was our archaeologist. Joe Taylor did most of the unwrapping. Uh, Chase Clossy was our forensic expert. And everything's on film. And, of course, that's in Watchers 8, um, which is a continuation of Watchers 6. But we unwrapped the baby skull, which was absolutely groundbreaking. Um, and we discovered that it had a very elongated skull. It also had strawberry blonde hair. And those pictures... You can see for yourself, and you tell me what we're looking at. And you can see those in Armatrail of Nephilim, Volume 2. When we talk about the elongated skull, I mean, clearly, you and I are on the same page. The evidence is impeccable. You can't you can't go inside of a womb and, and skull bind. No, no, it's not <laughs> you know, I mean, it's impossible. So um, what, what's interesting is you, you kind of go into, you go into a chapter. It's actually Chapter 17 in your book. And you go into the cranial deformation mentioned in Leviticus. Yes. Can you get um, can just Corey, a, just a basic outline? I, I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything in the book because it's too it's no, too that's awesome. Okay, Corey uh, Corey Hoffman uh, did that for us and came on the record and, and wrote a short article which we then published uh, in the book. And what's interesting about this is uh, he ties it back to the Levitical law, and he makes a very strong case that what we're talking about is not cutting the hair. In his opinion, it's binding the skull, shaping the skull. Why is that in there? So it's something that's been overlooked, and it was a real gold nugget that, that Corey found, wrote a paper, and we published it for him in our book. So there's never been any acceptance of this, according to the law of God. I mean, rabbis might differ with you, but according to Corey's research, that's what he, he uncovered. And frankly, I'm inclined to agree with him. That makes sense. Okay, now let's let's kind of talk a little bit about, and, and I know that this is this is one of those really hot topics, and people are still buzzing around about it. Where are we going with the hair sample? Uh, is there any latest information we can we can kind of throw out there on the hair sample and the Raman spectroscopy? Well, the Raman spectroscopy was done in uh, from a piece of red hair not attached to the scalp that we bought back um, from uh, the Paracas History Museum the first time. Remember, this mummy skull sitting in the case, and, and when you move it, hair falls out. That's what happens. So we took some of the hair and we had it gave it to a um, a gentleman, and he, uh, Stephen Colburn, and he tested it in the lab. He had the red hair, he had the black hair, uh, dyed, dyed hair, and um, hair that came from a, uh, supposedly that came from a man who had, uh, was basically raped by a so-called alien hybrid being with whitish blonde hair. And what's interesting is the human hair just appears on the graph, and then the dyed human hair has a completely different slope to the graph, but the, the hair from the red-haired mummy, which is about 2,000 years old, and the blonde uh, hair found uh, in the last, let's say, decade, um, the slopes of those graphs were almost exact. And we were really taken aback by that. And he wrote an, a, a full, a full um, um, article about it, which we then, I, and I paid him for that, but it's, it's reproduced in On the Trail of the, of the Nephilim Volume 2, uh, telling about what he did. I mean, it's basically like a, like a peer review paper. This is what it is. This is what Raman is. This is what I had. This is what I did. This is what we found. So, you know, if we had more red hair, other people could, and, and we had the blonde hair from the so-called alien hybrid, they too could duplicate that uh, in a lab. Uh, Steve still has the blondish uh, hair, and we could still do um, that. When we go when we go down that, that testing of the red hair, when we go back down to Peru at some point, when we actually get permission from the, uh, the Ministry of Culture in Peru to take the samples out, then we'll be able to do all this and uh, proceed and, and let people know. But as of 
as of now, there's been no new testing since the initial testing. Now, the concern that always comes to my mind is that, I mean, obviously, we we can't make a 100% conclusion on the Raman spectroscopy, but it, it, it does speak volumes. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But th- when we get into the idea of the DNA testing, we know that academia and the science world, for the most part, they don't want to have anything to do with this. As, ma- as a matter of fact, they want to discredit any bit of this that they can. So is that going to produce any type of issues for you to find someone that'll do the DNA testing? Well, I'm sure it will. We're not we're not at that place yet, so we don't know. Now, you mentioned earlier in the show about Nephilim and modernity. And this is one of those things that I've really been looking into a lot recently. I've had a lot of people write me and ask me what my thoughts are. Um, where do you think we are right now? What are the Nephilim currently and or the different manifestations? What are we dealing with right now? Well, we, we need to understand, first of all, that there is a second heaven. Uh, we know this because we are told very specifically that Michael and his angels fight with the devil and his angels, uh, and they're booted out of the second heaven. It's the great eviction. And what do they have on earth? Because the devil uh, has, has come to earth, and he can't get back anymore. He knows his time is short. I believe that these entities are being held in the second heaven. Um, that's, that's my take on it. They also could be held in the ships, Deep, deep, deep underneath the sea. There's no, no way to find them, no way to test it, no way to see them. The oceans are vast, vast and deep. And they certainly, um, they certainly can show or they certainly can act as a place to hide. So coming from beneath the sea or coming from the second heavens, they right. come in a ship and that, that's where you're standing now as, as right now. per the alien agenda. Right, right. For right now, based on the information I know, that's that's what I'm that's conjecture on my part, but that's that's my take on it. Now, where do the grays fit into all this, in your opinion? The grays, I believe, and it took me years of study. And when I when I came to that conclusion, the conclusion, which I'll tell you momentarily, I called David Flynn, who unfortunately passed away several years ago now. And I ran it by David. And I said, David, I'm really having trouble with this. Um, I, I you know, I just I just this kind of blowing me away here. And he had come to exactly the same conclusion that I had. And that conclusion was this, that the greys were manufactured biological body suits that the fallen one, Satan, and his cohorts had created. Um, they are, they are suits. And what they enable, they enable the demons to manifest in this dimension. Um, that's what they're able to do. In other words, uh, even when Whitley Strieber, and what, this is what led me to it. When Whitley's aboard one of the ships, according to his, his book, I think it's in communion. He he's looking at these these shells which are in a drawer, and the shells are the graves. And he's going like, "What the heck? You know, what's this? How does that work?" And that got me to thinking, why would you know why would um, the fallen one deliberately crash uh, a spaceship and lose you know three or five or six of his of his guys? Right? What's the point of that? And then I realized, well, he wouldn't be losing anything. If these are just shells, look, it gets back into the demon. Uh, you know, people would disagree on this. There are fallen angels, and then there are, and then there are demons. And I believe that demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. Now, the Book of Enoch tells us that. Uh, no place in Scripture does it tell us that, but the Book of Enoch elaborates on that and tells us this. Um, I believe fallen angels and demons are two different two different types. When the Nephilim were killed in the flood. Their spirits became the demon spirits, which are earthbound and roam over the earth. Now, we don't have to believe that. That's fine. But according to my study, demons need to inhabit something, inhabit people, inhabit animals. We read this when the when the demons are cast out by Jesus and they run into the herd of swine and the herd of swine. You know, they leave the man, run into the herd of swine, and then the swine uh, promptly run off the cliff and kill themselves. So demons need to inhabit something. And that's why I think the greys are actually biologically created suits um, where the demons can inhabit. In other words, it's a shell that they, it's like a, like a, like a skin, like a costume where the demon, demonic, the demons can, can go into these things and, and make them move and make them and, and articulate them and, and manifest in our dimension. That's my, that's my hypothesis. And again, when you talk about a suit, we're dealing with like an avatar, like just like out of the movie avatar where they, they Basically, create this thing. Yes. Okay. And now, is there a connection to that and an end times army? There was a movie called, uh, I think it was I Frankenstein. The movie actually stunk. I didn't care for the movie, 
but it did show this Lucifer character. He had a, a biological lab where he was creating an army of these hives or these flesh suits, these biological suits or avatars were being created. Is there, do you think that there is any possibility um, for that in the end times when we get to an end times army, a demonic army? Absolutely. Absolutely. Second Thessalonians tells us it'll be that Satan comes with all signs and lying wonders. So um, to be on the safe side, it's it's an open platform. We have no idea what this guy's been working on this stuff for thousands of years. Are you kidding me? Right. Are you kidding me? What is coming is unprecedented. What is coming is nothing like we've ever seen before. Men faint from fear from what's coming upon the earth. Lest those days were short and no flesh would survive. Even the elect would be deceived if that were possible. Are you kidding me? And, and I'm in total agreement with everything you just said. I, I do believe the book of Enoch is a very valuable resource. If it wasn't, I don't believe it would have been quoted verbatim in the book of Jude. I agree. And uh, I had a debate with a guy. I was on a radio show talking about uh, I was debunking the Sethite view. And sure. this this guy called in and, and we got into it. And, you know, I just asked him. I, he, he said that angels can't can't have sex, you know, and he said, we said and I said, well, why not? He said, well, angels don't have genitalia. How do you know? And that's what I said. I asked him, I said, have you seen an angel with his pants pulled down? And uh, <laughs> he kind of got caught off guard and uh, he, he just he went on and on and on and he presented no facts. He just started speculating all this stuff. And uh, but when we get into the whole the whole idea of the Sethite view, that tends to be a major perversion that we see being taught in our seminaries these days. Well, it is. And the Sethite view, Doug Camp did a marvelous presentation on this. Um, at the at the conference, the Northeast Prophecy Conference um, that we were just at over the weekend. And I've seen Doug and shared the platform with him numerous times, and uh, I've seen this presentation before. But he basically debunks the Sethite theory. I debunked the Sethite theory uh, in my book, The Cosmic Chess Match. Dr. I.D.E. Thomas debunks the Sethite theory in his groundbreaking book, The Omega Conspiracy. So, you know, I mean, Tom Horn does it. Gary Stearman has written about it. I mean, the Sethite theory... Uh, tries to twist the text by telling us that the sons of God are somehow the godly line of Seth and that the uh, the women of, of men are somehow the Hoochie Mamas of Cain. But the text doesn't say that. You know, Hoochie Mama of Cain is not mentioned. And you don't destroy the you don't destroy the entire world just because you got some bad people going around. I mean, you know, you got bad people today, right? I mean, come on. Something else is going on. And this is why Genesis 3 is so important about it. It says your seed will be at enmity with the seed of the woman. So we know that there's a seed war. There's a seed war between the seed of the, of, of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We know that. It's in Genesis 3. And then we see it manifest in Genesis 6. But Augustine in the 4th century, oh, we can't have any of this. And this is why we are where we are today. Augustine basically took, tried to take out as much supernatural as he could, specifically the whole Genesis thing. And by doing that, he disarms the Christian in, in the present day, in modernity. He disarms the Christian and, and, and they, we don't have a clue as to what's going on. And a pastor who was taught the Sethite theory has no clue as to what's going on and doesn't understand that there's a breeding program going on, that Satan's outnumbered two to one, quote from Chuck Missler again, um, and there's a breeding program, just like uh, uh, Dr. David Jacobs tells us. Look, something's going on here, and we need to understand and get our heads around what's going on and not be afraid to look at it and understand that Augustine did a great disservice to the body of Christ, body of Messiah, by, you know, twisting scripture with the Sethite view, which is completely made up. It has nothing to do with the text at all, in my opinion. The text actually is to the contrary. I mean, there's so many biblical, yes. uh, we, could, we could go into so and we don't have time, but we could go down the Bible and we could disprove the Sethite view with multiple scriptures, multiple places of the Bible. It's totally man-made, and I'll, I'll be so bold to say it's a doctrine of demons, because it, like you said, it, it disarms Christians, and Christians don't understand spiritual warfare uh, the way that you and I do if they're following the Sethite view. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. So, it's very nice to be able to talk to people like you and Tom who, who are on board and understand this because people don't realize what a danger it is in the, in the times we're living. It, it puts blinders on their eyes. And I always go back to that movie called They Live where, you know, Rowdy Roddy Piper puts on the glasses and he sees what's going on. And I feel that when we wake up to Genesis chapter six, we wake up to the, the Nephilim agenda, the alien agenda, we start to see everything else for what it really is. We start to see around. It's almost like a spiritual discernment or a spiritual awakening. And even Christians who are saved, you know, we're not dealing with a salvation issue here, but we're dealing with right. discernment issues. And sure. we have, we are called 
to discern, to test everything with the word of God, test every spirit. So it's really great that there's people like you putting books out like uh, On the Trail of the Nephilim 1 and 2. Um, just the information there, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, uh, and I'm extremely blessed to have a copy in my hand. And uh, let, me, let me just, let me, let me ask this. You, I've got a couple more points I want to bring up real quick. We're almost out of time. But interestingly, I had made a note to ask a question and you kind of touched on it. When we talk about the ocean and there have been plenty of people who have come out with eyewitness accounts and they've seen UFO type crafts come down, hit the water, transform and go into the water. When you get into the whole UFO phenomenon, it is absolutely bizarre. Uh, we have everything from classic disc craft that we see to craft that shapeshift, literally right in front of your eyes. How, how's that possible? To craft that are mile wide, that are seen by multiple witnesses, picked up on radar, that just vanish. How's that possible? And I believe that all this stuff is interdimensional. I believe it's it's you know highly highly charged, highly demonic. And I don't pretend to understand the depth of all this. Um, you know, I haven't sat down with a fallen angel and interviewed them. Good luck with that, right? <laughs> Which would be really interesting to do. You get you get an award for that. Yeah, I mean that would be incredibly interesting. Um, and I'm sure I would have to have some sort of protective suit and protective cage because he. The fallen angel would be trying to kill me the whole time. Are you kidding me? They hate us. They hate everything about us. That's why we're told in Scripture that the uh, the fallen one, the fallen cherub, Satan, runs around like a roaring lion to destroy anyone. You know, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And the devil is real. You know, people, you see the word devil and everybody laughs. You think you're back in the Middle Ages. We're talking about a highly intelligent, supernatural being, which has incredible powers. Nonetheless, he's created. And his power isn't, he's not all knowing, he's not all, um, he's not all powerful, thank God. And there's a force, there's a creator which is much greater than he is, not a force, but a creator. Um, and, and of course, Jesus who came, when we call upon the name of Jesus, it is greater than anything the fallen one can muster. I have experienced this over and over and over again. You got problems, you call out his name. You know, you're, you're seeing something like that, you call out his name. But nevertheless, it would be interesting to sit down with a fallen angel and, and ask questions. And, uh, you know, I mean, because they lie and do so habitually, um, you know, how do you know what the truth is? And, of course, that see, people actually do sit down with fallen angels, and they're the, called the mediums of modern day. And these they sit down in like Madame Blavatsky did, and she gave herself over to another spirit, and automatic writing ensued. Now, that's a conversation with a fallen angel. That's exactly what you're looking at. This thing inhabited her, went into her, and uh, possessed her. And she wrote these these different volumes, which are the basis of much occult literature that happened in the 20th and, of course, being carried over into the 21st century. So that's what we're looking at. Now, you, you mentioned to me previously that you believe you found an area or a location off the coast of California that could be an underground UFO base. Well, we've heard about that, you know, with all this stuff. I mean, it takes resources to do anything. It takes money, resources to do anything. To get a team out there, to get a diver, to get it to raid a uh, submersible sub. If I were trying to hide, that's where I'd go. I'd go in the ocean. How, how are they going to find you there? I mean, the depths of the ocean go way, 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 way down. Much of it is still unexplored. Uh, that's the place to hide. That's the place to put a base. Um, we know there's a lot of UFO activity off the coast of California. We know that. So, you know, it, it sort of dovetails together with what we see, with uh, people, eyewitnesses around Catalina, um, uh, in that channel, uh, watching UFOs under the water, uh, come out of the water, go into the water, the whole, you know, the whole phenomenon and, and all of its different particulars. Because what the ship is doing is bending time and space, and that's how it's able to jump. So from our perspective, it looks like it's moving at right angle turns. From its perspective, it's not. It's bending space and time. So the G-forces aren't there with what we see. They're just, they're just manipulating space, time, energy, and matter in ways that we, we can't do yet. So there's no G-forces like you would think, like in a rocket. That doesn't exist. They're, they're bending space. Now, the last thing I want to bring up, hopefully the last, <laughs> Uh, my network co-host, Mary Callie, wanted me to get your perspective on the Gaborum and just kind of if you could break that down for everybody. I wrote about this in the Cosmic Chess Match, that Nimrod, you can make a case that Nimrod became Gaborum, a mighty man, became Gaborum through ritualistic sex magic. I wrote about that 
tore it apart, looked at the Hebrew, looked at the text, uh, you know, interlinear, Strong's, the whole deal, talked to people about it. And you can make a strong case that Nimrod became a Gaborim through ritualistic sex magic. Well, that's absolutely bizarre. Oh, really? What do you think Aleister Crowley did? What do you think, uh, you know, Parsons and the crew did with the Babylon working rituals? Are you kidding me? It's all, it's nothing, nothing is, you know, it's all this, nothing's new. It's all been done before. And I think that, you know, the Gaborim, uh, where Nimrod becomes this, this Nephilim, he did it through ritualistic sex magic. I think the same thing is happening as we speak somewhere on the planet. So when we look at the word Gaborim in the Bible and we see, uh, I believe it's in the book of Joel, is it chapter two, where it's describing a locust army? Yes. And it uses the word Gaborim. Yes. You, you believe that the, the locusts are going to be some kind of a hybrid Nephilim creature? I do. Absolutely. What comes out of the pit is not normal. What comes out of the pit, you know, Russ is always joking about this. Um, you know, it's not hamsters and giraffes, the theorem, which the beast of the earth. It's not hamsters and giraffes. It's something else entirely. I'm telling you, what is coming is unpre- uh, unprecedented, uh, Justin. And unfortunately, the church, for the most part, dithers. The church, for the most part, sleeps. Won't talk about this stuff. The church has a form of religion, uh, but deny its power. And then that fulfills the, not my words. Take it up with take it up with the founder. You know, you go and take it up with Jesus. Why would Jesus tell us in the last days the church could have a form of religion but deny its power? Walk in the modern day Christianity for the most part. I'm painting with a very broad brush. Yeah, there are pockets of believers who know how to be still and wait on Him who is God. But turn on Christian TV and it's a joke. It's a three ring circus for the most part. It's what it is. The three ring circus. A bunch of nonsense. And we're seeing that occult revival. Last week's show, uh, I broke down some videos by a guy named John Crowder. And he's going around to a lot of these big churches and he's teaching people what he calls the mystical school. And it's unbelievable. It's, it's bringing magic into the church. It's teaching nonsense. people. Yeah, it really is. Nonsense. But it's sense. These it's, guys, I'm telling you, the whole emergent church, the whole name it and claim it group, the, the people that are running around with the seven, the seven mountains that we've got to take back for the kingdom and all this other nonsense. Look, I get it. Christians should be wherever we're planted. We should become the best in what we do. You know, so I get that taking taking the seven mountains. While in theory it's good, but in practice that's the millennial kingdom. In theory, we, wherever we're planted, we should ex- ex- excel to excellence. I understand that, or you know, strive for excellence. I should say, okay, I get that. But what we see all around us is stuff that I've never seen: volcanic activity, earthquakes all over the place in diverse places. Um, look at the Middle East. Look at what's going on in Russia. Think about the collapse of a dollar. Think about what's going on in Greece right now, where they're almost ready. The whole thing's ready to go. Look like in a, a stroke of a pen, the, uh, the you know the the, the the Swiss government decides that they're no longer going to back the euro. The euro loses 30% of its value overnight. How did that happen? Look at what happened on, on Cyprus, where oh bank holiday, we just wiped out your savings. Thank you. Think about the the coming collapse of a dollar. Think about the Fukushima reactor. Think about the record drought in California, which once again will impact the the gas, the food prices all over the country. And that's going to impact every single family. Think about the manipulation of the gas prices, right? Where all of a sudden gas just plummets. Whoa, the price of gas. Happy days are here again. And then all of a sudden these newscasters, which I, I blogged about, 15 of them at least all over the country have the same lead story. You don't need us to tell you that gas prices are back on the rise. Cut to another city. Same, you know, same exact byline. You don't need us to tell you that gas prices are back on the rise 15 times. You don't think the news is managed? Are you kidding me? Why is it back on the rise? Because the people that make the news and control the news are telling us it's back on the rise. But why did gas, gas prices plummet? Because the BRICS nation, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are trying to move the, the world economy that is right now based on the U.S. petrodollar off the petrodollar. And we were punishing the Russians the international cartel of bankers who control this country, by the way, were punishing the Russians by lowering the price of oil. Why? Russia is the second largest exporter of oil on the planet. Hit him in the pocketbook. Hit, look, we are looking at World War III. Look at ISIL over the weekend beheading Christians. Look at the persecution of Christians all over the planet. You know, And yet Obama and the crew still allow people... Muslims from terrorist countries to come into our country. What are these people crazy? Are they protecting our shores? Of course they're not. Is that unconstitutional? In my opinion, it is. But, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I think that's unconstitutional. Why would you let someone in in World War II 
from Japan or Germany. Why would you do that? And yet here we are. We're supposed to be at war with the terrorists, but we won't declare war. And yet we still allow immigrants from all these countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia to come and study here, to come and live here. Are we crazy or what? Franklin Graham uh, talked about that on the Fox News channel. I actually blogged about it this morning with that clip and showed the clip. And, he, you know, he echoed what I stated months ago, that that's exactly what we should do. Close the borders to any nation that harbors terrorists, period. What's wrong with this country? I think if anyone's listening right now and they were previously a preterist thinking that the end times have already happened, I think you just corrected them on that, L.A. <laughs> I, hope so. I really hope so. Because if this, you know, Justin, if this is the kingdom of God, I've said about, I've said this jokingly, I'll shave my head and become a Buddhist. Right. If this is it, if this is the kingdom, if this is a millennial kingdom, then I'm going to shave my head and become a Buddhist tomorrow. Are you kidding me? It's, it's you unbelievable. Me? You know, we have to we have to wake up as a people. We have to wake up as a church and realize the times that we're living. We have to look at the writing on the wall, see that it's happening. You know, Jesus talks about the parable of the fig tree. When you bend the branch, you can tell what season it is. You know, yeah. if, it, if it's pliable, yeah. you know it's summertime. Yeah. And, yeah. and here we are now. We're bending the branch. Everything you just said, we're bending the branch. We're seeing what time it is. And we've got to wake up. And if you're listening right now and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ, time is short, friends. We don't have time to play games anymore. We need to wake up to what's happening. We need to get our heart right. And we need to start walking with the Lord. That's the only chance you have. Amen. Now, the last thing I'm going to throw this out, we're, we're closing down now. But I saw a movie the other night, and uh, I was really blown away. It's rare that I ever see a movie that was big into theaters, and, and it wasn't crap. And I saw a movie called The Remaining. And this movie, The Remaining, blew my mind because it was made by a Christian. It didn't have any profanity in it. didn't have any anything bad. But it didn't deal with eschatology, but it was about the rapture happening. It didn't talk about when the rapture happened. It just showed the rapture happening. But what was interesting is that the people that were raptured, their souls were raptured, but their bodies were left behind. Ooh. I mean, great. I mean, it really caused me to think L.A. in a different way than I've ever thought about the rapture. You know, we always think about the body just disappearing and the clothes being folded up, um, you know, because of a lot of the media that we've had. But this movie really was well done. Their eyes kind of grayed out like the life got taken from them. And, and it, it, all I got to say is that I don't, I don't usually plug movies, but this is a movie that's worth watching. It was amazing. Well, check it out. For sure. And, uh, LA, listen, I can't thank you enough for coming on the fourth watch again. It's always great to have you on. Thanks, um, Justin. Appreciate it. And folks, if, you know, if you're interested in checking some of the resources out, it keeps the lights on here. Go to lamarzuli.net, www.lamarzuli.net. Great resources, the Watchers 8-box set, all eight of our DVDs on sale now. Great idea. Further evidence, I think one of the most cutting-edge books on UFOs, real interviews with people who have experienced the UFO phenomena. Um, the Amitrail of Nephilim 1 and 2, Volumes 1 and 2. I mean, are you kidding me? Oversized books, the pictures alone are worth the price of admission. www.lamarzuli.net. Thanks for, so much for having me on. Hey, one last thing. What's the promo yeah. going on on the website right now? There is a package deal going on right now. Yeah. yeah. Can you, could you, could you plug that for everybody real quick? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's our lowest price. It's all Watchers 8 in our new, our new Watchers 8 box set, plus further evidence, plus a free calendar, plus a free one month trial subscription to our e-magazine, our e-newsletter. Got some great authors that come in and write, um, just a whole plethora of authors who come in on a monthly basis and write for us. So check that out, www.lamarzuli.net. And that deal is nearly 50% off. Yeah, it is. It's great. So deal. anyway, yeah, make sure you check out his website, everybody. LA, thank you so much. God bless Thanks, you. Justin. And God we'll, bless you. We'll talk later, okay? All right, man. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Everyone in this world is seeking things that they need as well as things that they think they need. It's a natural process to do so. We tend to work hard to be able to provide for ourselves and to provide for our loved ones. But how often do we lose our focus in the midst of our daily work routines? It's easy to fall into self-reliance in the mix of it all. One of the most overlooked and important things we really need is God's mercy. You may even have a distorted understanding of what mercy really is, as many people get grace and mercy confused. Or oftentimes, they wrap them both up as the same thing. Mercy, in a modern day understanding, is God not giving us the repercussions we deserve. It's God not giving us the judgment we deserve. And let me go ahead and interject that this is a gift that is shed upon true believers and followers of Jesus Christ Yeshua. 
We can only obtain this mercy because of the sacrifice that was made on the cross. Now, eternally speaking, God's mercy is shown upon our souls. As Christians, we inherit eternal life with God in paradise, when we really deserve God's judgment. But think about it on a daily understanding. We make mistakes which should incur repercussion. But God's mercy overflows in that area as well. I can remember one night when I was driving about 15 miles over the speed limit on an inner city road. I clearly deserved a speeding ticket. But the officer that pulled me over showed me a great deal of mercy and he only gave me a warning. Although the officer showed me mercy, it was God showing me mercy. And that's just one example. But it seems like we take God's mercy for granted so often. But in looking at mercy tonight, I want to examine the means to receive mercy. That's right, I said the means to receive mercy. We can obtain God's mercy, but how? This might be a controversial topic, but I feel that it's one for us really to dive into and understand. So how do we obtain God's mercy? Jesus said it so clearly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, and I want to take you to it right now. Jesus said this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You see, friends, mercy is a characteristic of true believers. Like the other Beatitudes, Matthew 5-7 contains a twofold message. To enter into the kingdom, you must seek mercy. Once there, you must show mercy to others. The thought of showing mercy probably surprised Christ's audience because both the Jews and the Romans of that day tended to be merciless. The Romans exalted justice, courage, discipline, and power. To them, mercy was a sign of weakness. For example, if a Roman father wanted his newborn child to live, he simply held his thumb up. If he wanted the child to die, he held his thumb down. Now, as barbaric as that sounds, that behavior was just a commonplace product of a merciless society. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our merciless society, where countless babies are being murdered each day in hospitals and clinics. But Jesus repeatedly rebuked the Jewish religious leaders for their egotistical, self-righteous, and condemning attitudes. They were intolerant of anyone who failed to live by their traditions. They even withheld financial support from their own needy parents. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 15. Like the people of Jesus' time, many people today also lack mercy. Some are outright cruel and unkind, but most are so consumed with their quest for self-gratification that they simply neglect others. True Christians, on the other hand, should be characterized by mercy. In fact, James used mercy to illustrate true faith. He wrote this, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, but you give them not things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. James 2, verse 14 through 17. Now, let me break this down. I'm just going to paint the picture for you. A brother or a sister in Christ comes to you in the cold weather, and they're naked, or they don't have warm clothes, and they're hungry and have no food. And you just look at them and wish them the best of luck, and then you send them on their way? You've done absolutely nothing for that person. And James explains that if you've operated like this, your faith is dead. Now, that seems like a heavy judgment to some of you listening right now. But if you've operated like this, you've showed absolutely no mercy. You might say that those people made poor choices and they deserve the cards they've been dealt. But that's exactly why it's called mercy, friends. Because even though they don't deserve it necessarily, you give it to them in love as a work of your faith. And if you do that, if you show them that little bit of mercy and you give them clothes, and you give them food, that's a tiny little bit of mercy. And that's nothing compared to the great deal of mercy that we're shown by God through Christ. 
Now, James also said that mercy is characteristic of godly wisdom. Let's have a look at this. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And this is right out of James chapter 3, verse 17. So godly wisdom, which comes only from God, which comes only from above, is peaceful, it's gentle, reasonable, it's full of mercy and good fruits, and it shows no favoritism, and it contains no hypocrisy. You see, this ties into the verse we just covered, and the scenario of helping someone out in need. Mercy and good fruits go hand in hand. Good fruits of your faith and lifestyle are shown through your works, and your works should represent a merciful character in each and every one of you who loves God and who are called according to His purpose. So let me ask you, are you living a merciful life? Are you showing mercy even to those who have wronged you? If you aren't, you need to examine your heart and you must repent. And you must forgive those people who have wronged you. Showing mercy to those who have sinned against you is a great place to start. This doesn't mean buying them a brand new flat screen TV. But it means forgiving and moving on with your life in this particular scenario. You see, you can't be merciful if you haven't forgiven those who have wronged you. Because you're not showing them mercy in that very act. But let's really work to show mercy in all situations. As one who has received mercy from God, let mercy be the hallmark of your life. I want to encourage you all just to take a minute to thank God for His great mercy that He's shown you in your life. This is the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ Yeshua. Without His mercy, we couldn't be reconciled to God. I want to encourage you to ask Him to give you opportunities to show mercy to others on a regular basis as a lifestyle practice of your working faith as you grow each day in the knowledge and saving grace of Jesus Christ Yeshua. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it's absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it's impossible to have peace with Yahweh Elohim, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. You see, the Bible declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Because of Jesus Christ Yeshua and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He's also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He's willing to show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. But as it says in Romans 6.23, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to come to God, folks. There's no other way to get salvation. You can't earn your salvation by good works. Fact is, Jesus Christ is the only way. Every other way, folks, leads to hell. There's no authentic way to the Father but Jesus Christ Yeshua. I'm so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, a living sacrifice and shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins and the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin putting on the armor of God and growing into an intimate relationship with Him. 
It's the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one and learn firsthand what God expects from you. Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4, T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. (laughs) 